Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back. My guest today is Rob Wolf. He's a former research biochemist and one of the world's leading experts in Paleolithic nutrition and ancestral health. The world which our genetics evolved in is very different to the one that we exist in now. Rob's work tries to undo this by applying an evolutionary lens to our training, diet, recovery, and socialization. So today, expect to learn why the Guinness Book of World Records has banned unbroken sleep challenges, Rob's best tips for easily getting more protein into your diet, how losing one hour of sleep can ruin your relationship, how Rob approaches his training methodology after 20 years in the CrossFit world, and much more. Something I found really interesting when speaking to Rob is that the paleo, keto, ancestral health world is quite ideologically intense. There are some incredibly full-on debates that occur on the internet. And Rob, who is kind of the figurehead, one of the foremost intellects in this movement, is just so easygoing. He's just really flexible and wants people to do whatever makes them feel good. And yet, a lot of the people on both sides of the aisle are kind of firing these huge arrows and dropping atomic bombs, and Rob's just stood in the middle chilling out. So yeah, there's tons to take away from this, especially if you have not swallowed the red pill on sleep yet. Uh, I think some of the statistics that he drops today will really remind you that getting your eight hours is super important. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now since way before they were a partner on the show and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous you do not remember that you've got it on and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, 
and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now it is time for the wise and wonderful Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf, welcome to the show. Hey, huge honor to be here. Thank you. Thanks for tolerating the uh, the many reschedules that we had with my moving and everything. Absolutely fine. So you've just made the move to Montana. How come? Uh, a variety of reasons. Uh, primary to it, I, I have eight and six-year-old daughters, and they grew up in this northern Nevada area and... Four seasons, it snows, um, they played in the snow, They, you know, we had nice summers and stuff also. And then we moved to Texas, which was uh, cool in a lot of regards, but it snows there about once every 35 years. And they wanted to murder me for doing that to them. So um, the move to Montana brought us closer to family. It also uh, definitely, we, we just, I didn't realize it, like we grew up in the, the mountainous area and, and as cool as the hill country of Texas is just very, very different. And then there's also a straight blast gym here in uh, Kalispell, Montana. That's just phenomenal. And the whole family does Brazilian jujitsu and it, it's a, uh, an amazing community here. There's actually three gyms within the greater Flathead Valley area. So within 30 minute drive of my house, I have three different gyms that I could go do jujitsu with. So, uh, uh, multiple factors, but those are the biggies. Yeah. It's so interesting as someone from the UK to hear you essentially say the weather wasn't bad enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, uh, you know, it's funny because the the bad weather is kind of relative. Like, uh, and we lived in a part of Texas that was uh, that is understood to be very mild weather wise comparatively. Um, it's not the heat and humidity of say like a Houston or a Dallas or like a Corpus Christi or what have you. But um, on like a Christmas day, uh, you know, Celsius it would be. 32, 35 degrees Celsius or something like that, you know, and, and, uh, uh, we're sitting outside, you know, barbecuing and, and it was interesting. Like, I, I think most places, if it's, if, if it's like cloudy outside, you have the sense that it's going to be cool. Like you might need a sweater. And in yeah, Texas, yeah, yeah. if it's cloudy outside, um, it means the humidity has come and it's actually, hotter than what it is normally you know it, it's like putting a blanket around like a baked potato or something and and uh again where we were it, it, it's not that bad but um the kids would go outside they would ride their bikes and they'd run outside and then they'd come back in and they were just like bedraggled and and hot so like bad weather was was relative and kind of what we've noticed is cold weather you can always put some clothes on and kind of deal with that a variety of ways but if it's hot and in particular humid you just 
there's not a lot of escape. Like you just kind of sit inside and, and hope that the air conditioning doesn't break or something like that. And, and it's definitely cool in some ways. Like the kids spent the whole year swimming. Like we, the kids were swimming in uh, November and December in the backyard pool. You know, it was cold, but it, it, they, they were still able to do it. We definitely don't do that in, in Montana. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one, man. It's the, the UK kind of doesn't really have weather. I mean, we, we just have an absence of anything on the extremes. It kind of gets a bit right. cold and a bit grey in winter, and then it kind of gets a bit less cold and a little bit less grey in summer, and then it vacillates back down again. But um, right. yeah, man, some of the some of the, the the buddies that I've got that spend time in Montana or go out there hunting or doing whatever, it looks absolutely spectacular. So it does not surprise me that you've decided to go there. I wanted to go through um, ancestral health today, which is one of the terms that kind of swims in the circle that that your work sits mm-hmm. in the epicenter of. For people that aren't familiar with it, how do you characterize the foundations and the fundamentals of ancestral health? Uh, it's really t- taking a perspective that uh, if we buy into this notion of evolution via natural selection, that most organisms end up being fairly well-suited for the environment that they're in. And that changes in the environment could be either beneficial, neutral, or negative for the organism. And when we look at modern human existence, um, nobody's really quite sure what the year was or what the date was. But somewhere around like 2004, 2005, humanity made this really fascinating shift where more people started dying from chronic degenerative disease than from infectious disease and starvation. And this is the first time in our, our history, you know, 2.5 billion, you know, million years of, of human pre-human history. It's always been infection and scarcity that were the, the main killers. And now it's, it's diseases of abundance. And so this is kind of a primary example of where an evolutionary or ancestral health perspective could maybe be really valuable in how do we approach this stuff? Like simply telling people eat less, move more. We've had 60 years of that and it just fails because it actually goes exactly contrary to the evolutionary wiring that every organism has, which is eat more, move less, because this, this, this is the way you survive in a, in, in a world absent, you know, significant technology and the benefits of, of being able to, to share information, you know, via written and spoken language and all that stuff. So it's a, it's an idea that we don't like go back to trying to reenact the way that we lived or live under a bush or anything like that, but just where we see problems particularly with regards to human health like maybe we could we could look back a couple of generations or a couple hundred years even we don't even have to go like you know caveman era to get some really interesting insight uh the development of the electric light bulb is one of the most amazing things that ever has has you know been um gifted to humanity but it's got a cost to it too and i think that that's one of the the big things that isn't properly discussed within medicine at large. And like this, this age of COVID is a pretty good example of this. Like, uh, folks present things as if there is only a benefit or a negative and never that there's usually a risk profile associated with that. And that maybe we don't know exactly what the story is, but if we have a discussion around this, you know, maybe we can ferret some stuff out. It's pretty clear now that shift work is as injurious to health as a, a you know like a pack a day smoking habit. It's rec- you know recognized by the World Health Organization shift work as being a known carcinogen because of the uh, metabolic dysregulation that it imparts on us. 
Why is that? Because it's a really remarkable departure from the way that we've lived historically. And so what do we do about that? I'm not entirely sure, but if we're not having a conversation about it, we're certainly not going to find any answers. You know, if we're just kind of uh, doing these very myopic, you know, views about sleep and circadian biology, gut health and what whatnot. So I, I don't know if I properly answered the question around what ancestral health is, but it's really just it, it, one thing. It is not, it is not an answer. It is a question and hypothesis generation engine. It's a place that we begin asking questions to try to get to answers. And sometimes it can point a likely direction of investigation, but I think that that's where um, folks in the paleo diet or ancestral health scene ran afoul of the more established scientific community by saying, well, cavemen did X, so our response should be Y. And it's like, no, cavemen may have done X. What might those implications be for today? And what are the studies that we're going to do to try to ferret out whether or not that's, that's true or not true or some other detail in there? Are there broad buckets that you focus on in the ancestral health sort of paradigm? Yeah. I, and I, I guess I kind of broadly drop things into food, movement, sleep, and uh, uh, community. And, you know, within the community, I get kind of cheeky and I, I dump the gut microbiome in that because like we're, we're collaborating together, you know, I'm, I'm more of a lumper than a splitter. So it, it you know, but I, I think about like our, we evolved in, in extended small family groups and whatnot. And there seems to be some real power to, to the, the benefit of having adequate community, but those are kind of the, the broad buckets. And again, like I'm, I'm really like, I, I stick a lot of stuff under those, those umbrellas for sure. Yeah. It's funny that you talk about shift work and the effects on health. So my background for the last decade and a half, I've run nightclubs. So I'm a club promoter, I'm a director of one of the biggest events companies in the UK. So I've stood in the door of more than a thousand club nights in between the age of 18 and 33. I've lost a thousand different nights and then the subsequent slow reset back to something that resembles normal. And the maddest right. thing about COVID was for the first time in my entire adult life, I had a stable sleep and wake pattern. <laughs> first time ever Wow! since I was legal child. Right. Right. And what was the impact on your life with that? I mean, clearly it's hard to ferret out because it's got all these other mm -hmm. knock on effects of like social isolation and whatnot. But what, what, what did sleeping well do for you? It made a profound difference. I'd already started to take the red pill, I, su I suppose, with regards to sleep. Um, Matthew Walker was a big, a big impact mm -hmm. on that, mm -hmm. that Joe Rogan podcast. I would, I would guess that it's added thousands of years of collective life onto the entire human population people realizing right. oh god just the, the the effect of suboptimal sleep is catastrophic and it was the same for me and i was like right okay i need to prioritize this but really if you're doing if you're working a typical week for me might have been do a, a tuesday night friday night saturday night so i would have worked until about 3 4 a.m on each of those and then tried to fit training in and such like around that. But 
there is no mitigation strategy. Do you want to try and stay on that schedule? No way. I don't want to stay up until four th- four o'clock in the morning on the nights when I don't need to, obviously. But then you right. also still need to get stuff done. You've got to be up. You've got to go to the office. You've probably got a meeting in the club. Also, the thing... <laughs> The insidious thing about being a promoter is the most cognitively demanding part of the night at the very end when you count the cash and you complete the, the sheets <laughs> and do the accounts, that's the thing that you do at the very end, just before you're then and about you're to... Precisely. Yeah. You're also really hungry, incredibly hungry at that time. So if you're trying to diet, I mean, essentially a, a calorie deficit whilst working those shifts is borderline impossible. Uh, and the only right. places that are open at that time are takeaways. And it's just, it is a catastrophe. Um, and then it comes to you know, whatever, 14 months ago, all clubs are shut down. We still haven't been back into a nightclub in normal process since then. Um, And I found the main changes that I found were with my mood and with my calorie consumption. So my mood was so much more stable. Um, I was able to actually, you know, and a third one would be consistency of habits. Um, mm-hmm. what you're doing, what you're doing when you have shift work is you're programming inconsistencies into your life, which means that if you're trying to do something hard, like build new myelin down somewhere, I want to wrap myelin around this meditation habit or this walking after I eat every meal for 15 minutes habit or what reading, whatever it might be. It just makes everything harder. Um, I always wanted worse food and more of it when I was tired and my mood, I, I I found, and all of these as well will have contributed to each other, right? If I was eating better food, I would be in a better mood, which would mean I would have more discipline and resilience to right. do the habits. And it became this. And man, I've made more progress over the last 14 months than in a significant period of time before that. And I thought I was working pretty close to capacity beforehand. So yeah, the, the foundation that stable sleep. And I've got buddies that are doctors, nurses, firefighters, policemen, and um. I, I really, I, you know, I feel for them because the, there is a, a cap being put on what you can do outside of your life, um, outside yeah. of work with your life, because it's just, it's so suboptimal. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, it, it's uh, it's something that societally we need to really figure out how do we take care of those folks? And to some degree, how do we protect them from themselves? You know, it's it's ironic that uh, uh Within medical circles in particular, and it's tough because folks will work multiple shifts and they, you know, to make more money, this is kind of how they plan for retirement and stuff like that. But after that first eight hour shift or or 10 hour shift, they're garbage. Like they are as cognitively impaired as somebody who has a blood alcohol level of like a 0.1. Like they would be legally drunk were this caused by ethanol, but it's caused by sleep uh, 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 deprivation. And we're paying them more to remain in the hospital or or whatever. And again, it it's tough because folks will be like, oh, I'm fine. And for super repetitious skills, you can get through it. Like you, you, you know, this is where surgeons can be super sleep deprived, but they've tied those knots a million times. But if you're faced with a novel situation and you need to make a decision, that's where things can go horrifically wrong. And we have to kind of wrap our heads around societally what do we do about that you know yeah did you see i think it's matthew walker cites this study about the significant proportion of doctors or surgeons or nurses who after working an over over exaggeratedly long shift then end up back in the same hospital having had a crash on the way home yes yeah yeah it's remarkable yeah 
And then there's another one about when daylight savings comes in, 25% increase in, is it stroke or heart attack or something? It's it's, uh, motor vehicle accidents. And I mean, it varies, but uh, it's remarkably stressful, just that one hour shift, you know, and then... um, I think about all the travel that I did where I would wake up and I'm like, I don't even know which state, country, or continent I am on currently. Like I would take me a minute, grab, oh, okay, I'm in Germany or I'm here or whatever. And that, uh, uh, you know, just a, a one hour shift, we see it at a, a uh, I guess, kind of a, a systemic level and then you can extrapolate that down you know doing east coast west coast in the united states it's three times as worse you know and and uh yeah i i wonder how much time i took off the end of my life by by just my travel schedule in the past you know yeah well i mean that's that's the same if you're talking about smoking a pack of cigarettes a day well that's it i could have i could have just not worked in nightlife and decided to sit at home and blaze up for the entire day. Have you got any other statistics or sort of crazy stories that you've come across in your research to do with suboptimal sleep or sleep deprivation? Well, I've stole most of my stuff from Dr. Kirk Parsley. He's a retired Navy SEAL. And then he ran the uh, West coast um, kind of medical concerns for the SEAL teams for about eight years. Here's just an interesting Side note, um, the Guinness Book of World Records will let you jump a rocket car across the Grand Canyon. You can juggle flaming chainsaws. You know, there's all the stuff you can do. You cannot go for a, a unbroken sleep deprivation challenge um, because the last three people that have tried it, they get between nine and 11 days. They tap out, they go to bed and they die and they have no idea why they die. But it's like... It's virtually a a, a given. Um, there's some other interesting stuff. There have been studies where a couple is, um, they get a group of couples. One of the, the husband or wife is sleep deprived one hour. And then they they survey the folks like how loving and caring and affectionate is, is your significant other. If one spouse is sleep deprived, both report that the other one is a bigger dick than what they normally are. And, and so it, it, uh, it just kind of spirals down from there. Um, one hour of sleep deprivation accumulated daily by the end of a week leaves an individual as cognitively impaired as if they were like a blood, you know, 0.1 blood alcohol content. But the, the really insidious thing about, um, serial sleep deprivation is you habituate to it and it becomes your new normal. You, you don't, when you've been sleeping well and then you have a super bad night's sleep, you get up the next day and you're like, man, I really feel that. But if that goes on, you don't really feel quite as bad. So you aren't even as aware of how, you know, your reaction time is off, your your uh, uh, critical thinking skills. And you alluded to a bunch of the the problems around the rest of, you know, like diet and, and lifestyle. Your decision making is poorer. You crave saltier, sugarier foods, you know, hyperpalatable foods. Uh, your willpower is gone. Like it, it just, it, it's like doing a willpower, you know, excision process. Like you literally have no, no willpower. Um, the tendency to be cranky and, and have uh, overly emotional responses are, are dramatically increased. Something like 85% uh, in the United States, 85% of excessive force cases within policing occur within 24 hours of a significant shift change. 
And I think about myself, like if I have a really bad night's sleep and somebody cuts me off, my kids are kind of being problem, like my reasonable response is very difficult to reach, you know? It, and so you think about police work, which is challenging under the best of circumstances. And then they're subjected not just to the shift work itself, but it's typically a shift change. It, you know, where they've gone from day shift to night shift or vice versa, you know, there's some significant delta that occurs that really messes with their ability to, to do that executive functioning and the, the, you know, the, um, more emotionally intelligent type, type responses. So is this a case for when you do a sh shift change, like the, the cop is on, desk duty or light duty, or they've got somebody who hasn't been off of a shift change. But this again, like we've got to pay for that stuff, but societally, how much would we save by taking care of these people and, and understanding the risk exposure we place them in with the shift work and the shift changes and do some backstops to try to prevent that. You know, in the United States, the George Floyd thing is created so much, much chaos and drama and loss of life, loss of property. And I don't know if Derek Chauvin had just gone through a shift change, but it's exactly he was, what I was shit. thinking, you know, yeah. it's, it's like, you know, how much other stuff might we mitigate if we, we use some of this to inform like public policy. Yeah. It's, um, the interesting thing about sleep specifically is the externalities and the costs, inevitably, even for the individual, there's some hyperbolic discounting, right? We think about how far we're going out into the future before the inevitable onset of inc rapid onset of Alzheimer's or perhaps some sort of other, mm -hmm. other cognitive decline. But because you can't see it, right? You can't see something happening to a person. For instance, if there was a substance, some sort of toxic substance that a particular portion of the workforce had to deal with. And what that substance, exposure to that substance caused to occur were the same effects as this deprivation of sleep. We would be up in arms. Look, you're destroying these people's marriages. You're forcing them to eat this food that they need to eat because they've been exposed to this particular substance. They're cranky. And then we've got this problem with the police because the police need to deal with it as well. The the issue is that it is so closed doors, we don't see the effect and we don't see the actual occurrence. And the, the main thing, actually, I think that I realized when I, going back to when I first saw that Matthew Walker podcast on Rogan, it's so front and center of all of our lives. It's so ubiquitous that you can't see the wood for the trees. It's you don't, yes, you don't yeah. realize that it's a thing. You just, it's, especially if you're a hard charger, right? If you're a type A go getter, Sleep is just the thing that gets in the way in between the two periods of waking and working. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I mean, look at a lot of the, you know, the, um, the folks that we really idolize, you know, surgeons, Navy SEALs, they're selected for their ability to, to deal with sleep deprivation, you know, and, and there are some outlier characteristics like, uh, SEALs, uh, generally, um, walk around with a, a neuropeptide PYY that's like 600% higher than the rest of the What's that? population. It, it, it's a, I'm not, it, it, nobody's entirely sure exactly what it does, but it seems to be very key to stress inoculation, resiliency and, and whatnot. Is that highly heritable? I believe so. 
yeah, yeah, I believe there are some heritable uh, characteristics there. And I'm only familiar with it within these kind of seal populations. But is the difference between somebody who makes it through surgical residency or not because they've got this, you know, particular polymorphism or whatever, that's all well and good. Um, but you can break those people eventually. They will break at some point. Like there's this isn't an infinite well that they can go to, but we really do hold them up, you know, in, in high esteem, Celebrate this, this it, ability right? to motor through and be tough and, and all that type of stuff. And, and there are, you know, it's funny just when you think about it. Uh, so I'm almost 50. I have an eight year old and six year old daughters, very grateful for when I did have kids in my life, just like kind of unfucking my own mental baggage and, you know, different things like that, more, more financially sound. But man, when I was 20, I could deal with sleep deprivation a lot better. <laughs> Dude, you're speaking to me. So I'm 33. I don't have I don't have kids. I'm not engaged or married or anything. And this is in the back of my mind. I can't wait to be a dad. I'm so excited to be a dad. I've spent all of this time sorting my shit, right? Making mm-hmm. me the sort of... I would have been a shit dad at 23. I would have been able to deal with the sleep deprivation, but I hadn't sorted myself. I still haven't sorted myself, but you know what I mean. I'm better. And um, But it does make me think you're going to be you're going to be dealing with up and nappy changes and all that yep. sort of stuff when you're in your 40s and yeah i i might have to message you and and try and get whatever the tips are you, you, the the main tip is just grab what you can and and uh you know it it uh <laughs> It, you, it, it's funny and i don't want to drive this in into you know like uh being a dad land but um it was interesting when they were kind of newborn up to about i don't know maybe two years two and a half years both of them slept pretty well like we'd we'd put them to bed they'd go to bed about six six thirty they'd sleep 12 hours so we still had kind of an evening we could watch a little tv hang out chit chat and everything and now as they've gotten older um they want to do stuff uh they they getting in the way asking for activities and attention yeah yeah, I mean, they went to jujitsu yesterday. They had jumped on the trampoline all day, then went to jujitsu, did a bunch of matches because kids got new belts and they Iron Man the kids. So everybody, you know, it was all the stuff. We got home, we fed them, and then they went back out on the trampoline. And get this, it, they turned the sprinkler on the trampoline, and it was still chilly here, but they're out jumping in their swimsuits on the trampoline in Montana in the spring, you know? And I'm just like, I don't know that I ever had that much energy, but I guess maybe I did. It maybe point. they've got that that PYY six hundred. I don't know, man. Thing. Wait, Wait what is it? Geez. One in what, the the same number of people that get struck by lightning twice in their lifetime have that genetic modification that allows them to go on whatever it is four or five hours sleep. You should get them right. tested. You should get the kids tested, man. You might have two two double lightning strikers there. I think part of it is that I'm old and they're young and well fed, <laughs> so the and that's really the just, just all there is to it. So you know, bad. this is just biology. It's like I'm ready to die, and they're just in the <laughs> the budding part of life. You know, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. So okay, so we've scared we've scared people straight about the, what happens when sleep's bad. What what would you say are your highest three priorities for improving sleep quality, or what are some of the things that you focus on? Man, um. Proper glycemic load is really big. Like some people do well on high carb. Some people do better on lower carb. But I do find that um, sleep disturbances oftentimes relate back to. So like some people on very low carb, they can have sleep problems and and they actually need to address some electrolytes to usually get that that fixed. Like sodium ends up being a a piece of that. Um, But I do notice that 
if folks are eating an overly refined diet, uh, too many carbs for their constitution, it can kind of disturb their sleep. That that's definitely something that can wake them up. Um, man, I gotta say that this is, it, this gets into personal stuff and I don't know. I, I think it applies to everybody, but, um, I pulled all social media off of my, my phone, like, like, uh, six months ago. Um, I will do some via the desktop and even from there I write stuff now and then I send it to my assistant and my assistant posts it and I don't really go on like Instagram or Twitter very, very rarely. Like I have somebody else do that, but, um, my sleep improved dramatically just decoupling from social media. Why do you think that is? I think the base level stress of, of just all the shit that's going on and it may be different for somebody if they're just kind of like my stuff was always like, there's always a battle I've got to fight, whether it's like the, you know, the, the knuckleheads within ancestral health. It's like, well, 30 grams of carbs is keto and 50 grams of carbs is not keto. And they're bickering over that. And while that's happening, I also have folks saying that, um, animal husbandry, like cattle are going, are the singularly largest contributor to greenhouse gases and are going to destroy the world. And so I'm trying to tackle that thing. So like there were a lot of different, you know, things that I was, I was trying to address. And what I started doing was just, um, looking at what the concerns are doing broadcast only, whether it's a written piece or like a podcast and then that's it. And then I don't really off. Yeah. interact after that. And that was huge for me. Like the, the, just the stress level dropped. And I discovered that doing that freed up about three to five hours a week of time that I was previously like interacting with people, which some of it I really enjoyed. Like there, I, I learned a lot interacting with people on social media. Like I can connect with somebody in, in the UK or, you know, anywhere in the world at any time of the day, it's, there's some really cool elements to it, but it, it, I, I think it's safe to say it got pretty toxic. And so, uh, I think looking at glycemic load, I think looking at just kind of tech in general, like how much you're doing when you're doing it, um, is an interesting, is an yeah. interesting one for you that you might not have seen. I looked at, into some papers that studied the equivalent effect on melatonin release and circadian rhythm from e-readers versus Kindles. Mm. Uh, and they actually said that even the normal paper white, so you don't need the fancy Oasis that's got a warmer light on it. Um, mm-hmm. Basically the effect of the light is negligible on a nighttime, which for those of us that are part of the, uh, Kindle Club, bowing at the altar of Amazon. Um, right. That's really good news because it means yeah. you don't need to have a paper book and your big light on or even a reading light on. You can go really dim and, you know, you can have it as far away from your face as you want and then you kind of turn over and go to bed. Yeah. So that was that was an interesting one that I discovered a couple of months ago that if you are wanting to read on a nighttime, the optimal solution, it would appear, is to go Kindle, turn the brightness down and get away. Yeah. And I mean, I, I also do the little extra bit. I'll put on some blue blocks with it. And yeah. I mean, what's your blue blockers? Between... What are your blue blue blockers of choice? I've had Matt Maruka from raw optics on here. If you're familiar with those guys, they're, oh, they're I, awesome. I have a pair of those. I, I have a pair of, I suspect just about everybody's and my kids steal them and they end up in weird places like on their animals and stuff like that. And so of course, I'm, of course. I'm just at the spot where, um, any port in a storm, you know, it's, it, I, no, no joke. Um, I took some play glasses that my kids have and took a red, uh, Sharpie marker 
and put that on the lens because it was a clear lens. And I used that for like three days because I couldn't find any of my other stuff. And so uh, I'm I'm very non I'm kind of like the guy in the bar that it's like 3 a.m. And I'm just kind of looking around like, who am I going home with? And so with the, my blue blockers, like I am very undiscerning with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny, man. That's so funny. I had So moving on to diet, we've talked about sleep, one of the big ones, hopefully giving people some good, good bits of advice there. I had Diana Rogers on the show a few months ago, and I asked what most people get wrong with their diet, and she said insufficient protein. I'm going to guess yep. that your answer would be the same. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I've, I've been around the horn on this where, uh, uh, I mean, just really looking at it clinically, like there's great data from a, a research perspective that, that really supports this position. But we, we have a community called the Healthy Rebellion where we do these uh, resets three or four times a year. Folks are trying to lose weight or get, get improve their physical capacity, a whole host of things. And what's fascinating to me is folks in there will say, man, I've been following your work for 10 years, 12 years. It really helped me. Um, but I've still had this problem, like losing the last 15 pounds or, you know, whatever the, whatever the case may be. And then when we get in and really weigh and measure their food for, for a couple of days a week, they're 25 to 50% under eating protein and it shocks them. And, and, you know, for us, we have never yet seen somebody have body composition issues that was overeating protein. They have always been under eating protein. Now, every once in a while, somebody will be overeating in general, but it, it's kind of like, okay, well, shift the ribeyes into something that's maybe a little bit leaner or something. But even then, I mean, that's that's like a fewer than 1% of people, like everybody's under eating protein and you get that protein dialed in and it's somewhere between like a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight. So there's a pretty good, pretty good spectrum there. And uh, then you figure out, do you run better on fat or carbs or maybe a little bit of a combo? So you figure out kind of your glycemic load. Like I just seem to do better on, on kind of lower carb, higher fat. Not everybody does, but once you get that protein part buttoned up, then you figure out, you know, how much of the other stuff do you need? And then you just go out and kick ass and and rock the world. And and uh, it is so easy if you can just get people to eat that adequate protein. And like I, I just emphatic, like it's got to be from whole real food. Like shakes don't cut it. I wish they did. Um, it, it in a pinch for some people, okay. But like even my my, I don't do a ton of work with athletes. But it's rare, even with athletes, that I find that a shake trumps real whole food that you got to chew and like the, the satiety and the, the nutrient density of it and whatnot. But yeah, that, that protein piece is, is huge. And uh, Diana, the clinical practice that she does, she just sees this again and again and again, folks are just like chronically under eating protein, like shockingly. The problem is, especially if you want to go one gram per pound of body weight, I'm around about 200 pounds. There is no chance in hell that I am accidentally eating 200 grams right. of protein per day. No one in history has acted, unless you went to one of those buffets and decided right. that you were not going to look at any of the carbs and just went through the meat. So give me some advice. How can people consume more protein, get more protein into their diet, especially if we're not permitting them, the, the, the allowance is taken away with bars of protein and with supplements of protein how do you advise someone hit that 200 gram or that 180 or that 160 per day 
Yeah, I think a couple of different angles on this. One is definitely looking at your seasoning, like seasoning, sauces, things like that, like kind of switching that up because it can get very monotonous just eating. Like Talk me through some of your favorites. Or chicken thigh. I, I like, uh, so if we do kind of a, a matrix where we've got like garlic, ginger, black pepper, paprika, and then we have three different fats, say like olive oil, coconut oil, and beef tallow. Um, you've got 15 different kind of flavor options there, you know, so you could do chicken in garlic with beef tallow, um, chicken in garlic with olive oil. And it's a very different flavor experience. So th this is a thing called the food matrix that I developed a, a long time ago. It was pretty prominent in my second book, Wired to Eat. So just a little bit of variability there can really help, uh, uh, you know, getting some, some different flavor experiences there. Something we've noticed too, and this takes a little bit of planning, but if folks cook, say like some beef, some chicken and some shrimp, and they have a little bit of each, or maybe the meal is mainly beef with a little bit of chicken and shrimp. So uh, one of the ways that we help limit people from overeating is actually limit limiting palate options. We have fewer options there. So from a caloric co control perspective, that's a great strategy. But from getting a protein in, like you start, you're like, like ribeye is great, but by the time you get past your sixth or seventh ounce of ribeye, you're kind of like, oh man, this is getting to be a lot. But if you had a little bit of chicken to break it up, a little bit of salmon or or shrimp or something to break it up. So it, it takes a little bit of planning, but if you can get two or three proteins at, at a given meal, then that can certainly help. And those have been two of the, the main strategies that we've recommended within our community and people really do well with it. And sometimes it, it's just... Uh, you got a piece of steak and then you've got a can of salmon and you put some mayonnaise in the salmon and like you, you do half of that and then save half of it for the next deal. And then, uh, that rolls over to your next day and you scramble the salmon into some eggs. And then that, that flavor combination is different than just salmon by itself or eggs by itself. So you start getting some of these combos going. Yeah. That is because you're coming at the meals from a protein base, whereas most yes. people would maybe look at it from a, either a carb base or a, a vegetable base. Like, yep. If you were to say, here's your meal and all the vegetables in it are spinach, and you're like, well, so you're telling me I've got like 150 grams or 200 grams of spinach in this one meal and you want me to just eat that. We'd say that was crazy, but it's very rare unless you get like the seafood platter or a surf and turf or something at a restaurant. It's very rare that you go in and you get, I'll have the chicken with the beef, please. Uh, right. it, that's just not what happens. And I think that that's right. now been rep replicated when we cook for ourselves. The number of times that I have two different meats that I've made for myself in one meal is almost zero. So that's, I mean, that's a really good suggestion that I'm going to guess that if you were to do eggs on a morning, then putting some ham in with that or putting yep. some tuna in with that is another good way to do it. How are you cooking? Have you got any advice about sort of exp expedious ways to cook multiple different meats or what are some of your favorite ways to to get the beef oh, going if, if you've got seafood going and, and chicken going at the same time yeah so it, having kids like that complicates it's a little bit um it, you know it's like one kid likes this so i i try to find things that pretty much the the kids do eat what we put in front of them but at the same time like just seeing your kid kind of pushing the same piece of meat around the plate and like trying to hide it like it I, I try to to cater to them a bit. So like shrimp is something that both girls eat really well. Salmon is something that both girls eat really well. 
the shrimp we can get frozen, like we can get wild caught frozen, and it's really easy to measure out how much we want. And that one lends itself to cooking. Like I could cook it in butter. I could cook it in olive oil. I could cook it in butter and garlic. I could do it olive oil and garlic. I could do some Thai seasoning. I could do some Indian seasoning. So again, with that, and so maybe um, I have some beef that's left over. Like we have a Traeger. It's like a pellet fired um, uh, uh, kind of kind of grill. It's pretty big. And so I will cook three racks of ribs, uh, uh, eight to 12 hamburgers, and then like a couple of steaks. And then we freeze some of that and, and we'll rotate that stuff through. So, um, I, and really for me, I, I'm able to kind of grind through stuff. Like if I've got a, a three quarters of a pound of meat, I'll just eat it and I, I just get it done. And you know, I, 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 I just do it. But for other folks, that's where they could have say like some ribs and then if they don't have the shrimp prepared, like some frozen shrimp, you throw it in a pan, put some olive oil and a little bit of seasoning on it, then just put a lid on it and it's going to kind of steam. It's not going to be the best shrimp you ever had in your life, but it's going to be pretty damn good. And it's hard to screw it up, you know, and it required <laughs> two minutes of time, you know, just don't burn it and it's going to be edible and, and pretty good. And then I've got my, my two protein combo there, you know, 30 grams of protein from the steak, 30 grams of protein from the shrimp. I'm, I'm good to go. What, yeah, so, what are the, um, the insights around the amount of protein that you can absorb per meal? There's some rumors around it's 35 grams. Is this sort of a ceiling within one sitting? Anything on top of that just gets excreted out. Have you looked into this? Yeah, and it you can absorb a lot. Now, you do start getting, from an anabolic signaling perspective, it does start kind of plateauing Diminishing. out. Yeah. yeah, you do get diminishing returns on that, but you do also generally get really stable blood glucose levels. You still have the the fact that protein, dense protein sources are nutritionally very dense. So you're getting all these vitamins and minerals and and whatnot that, that comes along. So I, I think it's a little myopic to just focus on like the anabolic response of the protein. Um, this is where I think like the one meal a day, the OMAD stuff is really problematic. You, it's really difficult to get enough anabolic signaling with one meal a day, like two meals, two meals and a snack. Like it makes it much more reasonable to, to, uh, support like maintaining muscle mass and, and whatnot. But yeah. Yeah. Got you. How about treats and sweet things when you're trying to control sugar? What do you go to? I, I have some, uh, dark chocolates and, and again, like kind of catering to the kids, um, We've found some dark chocolates that they like, but they, and, and what I try to do is find things that the whole family can enjoy, but they self-regulate. I don't want to be the food cop at all, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so we have some keto ice creams that are called rebel. I'm not sure if you have this over in the UK, but it's the best it's, we've got uh, sort of a, like a low carb ice cream, but it's not going to be the same. Ours would be a, like a halo top or something like that. Okay. It's going to be nothing, okay. nothing similar to keto. I don't think. This stuff is definitely better than a halo top, but I, uh, it's, um, it's good, but what's interesting, the, the kids will finish dinner. They'll be running around. They're like, Hey, can I have some rebel? I'm like, absolutely. So they, they go pull it out and they scoop it up. They self self-regulate, they self-serve, they have a bowl and they're done. And every once in a while, like, uh, uh there's a local, uh, ice creamery, uh, uh, peak sweet peaks here, here in Montana. Their ice cream is amazing. It is not a self-regulatable deal. You know, like the kids will have a much bigger bowl that they scoop for themselves. 
And then they finish the bowl. And then like 20 minutes later, they're like, can I have some more of that? I'm like, tomorrow you can have some. Let's save some for tomorrow. So again, I try not to super be the food police guy, but I uh, some keto ice cream, some dark chocolate, uh, stuff like that. I, I try to find things that the kids, the kids really like chicharrones, the fried pork skins that are, that are flavored. Um, definitely a kind of a Southern thing, but, but, uh, uh, my mom was from Arkansas. So I've, I've eaten those. So it's a salty, crunchy thing in, instead of like a potato chip, kids love them, but it, it's also interesting. They'll get a bowl of them and they eat them and then they go put the bowl on the counter and they're done. And so that's the stuff that I, I try to find that the kids enjoy it, but it's not that cocaine like deal where it's like, I need more. And so then they can start self-regulating and we just have open discussion with the kids. We're like, yeah, this other ice cream tastes really good, but like we, we would eat the whole thing in one sitting. Right. And we're like, yeah. Okay. And this is all the work that mom and dad do is trying to help people like save their own lives from this amazing tasting food. And so we, we just are really honest and open with them about that. And we're like, someday you're going to make your own decisions and you can do which, whatever you want to do, but a simple thing you can do is get the ice cream that's pretty good, but not so good that you're going to eat the whole thing in one sitting. And they're like, okay, that makes sense. And uh, so that's kind of how we we monitor that across the board. Like we try to have a variety of of options, but stuff that uh, all of us um, can self-regulate on. Like there are some kind of keto granolas and they're really good. Like to the tune that my wife's like, hide this, you know, because she'll just go back and go back and go back. And, and so it, it, it's funny, even with some stuff like that, they put a little honey glaze on it and, you know, they've got a, the, the mouthfeel, the crunch and everything. It's got some cinnamon, like it's really good in a big ass bag. You could crush the whole thing <laughs> easily just each time you walk by like, Heck, man, like a quarter cup, you know, super easy to do. And each quarter cup, it's like 200 calories or whatever, you know. So, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. What about training? How does ancestral health get applied to training? I know that you were the co-founder of the first ever and the fourth ever CrossFit affiliate. What's yeah. what's the paradigm? Draw me on a, pe a spectrum from where CrossFit's at to sort of where you see health and training and physical fitness and stuff now. Oh man, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think the most important thing is whatever folks are going to stick to like that. That's mm -hmm. definitely, if your gig is walking, your gig is yoga and you just hate everything else. Fine, fine. But the one pitch that I would throw out to people though, is that as we age, there is, we all have a, a potential for cancer and for heart disease and for neurodegenerative disease, but we all have a risk value of one. We have a hundred percent risk of sarcopenia as, as we age, uh, age related muscle loss. Like we will lose muscle strength, power, volume as we age. Now we can dramatically change what happens with that based off of some, some smart training and, uh, doing like a full body strength training session two times a week can dramatically, um, it, uh, mitigate the the loss of muscle mass as we age. And so even if you have somebody that really hates strength training, they don't like being in the gym or whatever, um, you join like one of these key in 24 hour fitness places that has a bunch of machines and you go and you, you hit one machine, say like it's a bench press and you, you find a very lightweight, you do it nice and easy for 15 reps. 
increase the weight, do it for eight or 10 reps, increase the weight, do it for five, increase the weight, grind out two or three, and you're done. Now do a pull. And then you do your pull, and now you do some sort of a leg movement, maybe do a little bit of buys and tries, delts, do some abs and low back, and you're done. Like you're in and out of there in like 15 minutes doing this uh, kind of uh, superset type format. You're never going to be a bodybuilder. You're never going to be a powerlifter doing that. But like a really like time efficient workout, um, minimum investment, maximum return. I, I I think stuff like that is incredible. Some CrossFit type stuff can be a little bit like that too. Um, but I I just almost beg people to do, particularly out of that kind of like yoga and endurance athlete scene. It's like running's great, cycling's great, but uh, let's do something to fix your posture. Let's do something to keep some muscle mass in that upper body. So when you crash your bike, hopefully your your uh, collarbone doesn't snap you don't get like chopped a twig you, and stuff yeah, exactly. like that. Yeah, Split in yeah. two. What about for yourself then? Obviously, having had all of this time and exposure to CrossFit from nearly 20 years now, two decades of exposure to that, where do you or how do you try and optimize your training as someone who obviously did enjoy the high intensity, the heavy weight, the loading, mm-hmm. etc.? I, I do everything physically now is kind of geared towards just doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I try to do that two, two to four times a week. Uh, it's usually more like two for the most part. And then I do two days a week of strength training and it's a, a press, a pull, a hinge, a lunge, you know, a squat, something like that tends to be more like a five sets of five, uh, eight sets of three, like kind of heavier Yeah. in, in between. I do a lot of mobility work from the kin stretch FRC world because I, I noticed that, um, you know, because I sit a lot and whatnot, like, uh, uh, in the demands of jujitsu, that mobility piece is another part. Like the strength is really important, but also, and mobility isn't just stretching. Like it's actually figuring out how the joint articulates and all that type of stuff. I remember I, I, um, I had to swerve to avoid hitting a deer and I hit kind of a curb and it knocked my car out of alignment. It took me like two days to get to the, the tire place and the, you know, the auto repair place and the tire that was kind of just a little cattywampus. It was destroyed. Like it, it, and I didn't drive it that much, but properly aligned tires, like they wear very, very slowly. And then you get it just a tiny bit out of alignment and it just shredded this thing. It stripped the tires off. And that's where like, if you're doing any type of repetitive movement, your shoulders, your hips, you know, your knees and things aren't tracking well, that's where you end up really destroying the joint surfaces. So some amount of mobility work I I think is really important. So, I mean, my, my main focus is jujitsu. I do a couple of days a week of some dedicated strength training, usually about one day, sometimes two of some low intensity cardio, just kind of recovery stuff. Sometimes that's just wearing a weight vest and taking the dog for a walk. Sometimes it's putting on a, an episode of the expanse and getting on my, my airdyne and just kind of, kind of going at a nasal breathing pace. But that that's most of what I do. And one thing I started doing in the, in the evenings, instead of doing any TV, we listen to some books on tape for the, for the kids. And I just uh, do um, stretching while that's going on. I get my phone, I set a timer, I hold each position for like four minutes and, and, you know, I do almost an hour of stretching each night, but it's while we're hanging out as a, as a family. It's crazy when you try and socialize something like that, assistance, recovery work, some sort of accessories, stretching. If you're just chatting away, I went to, um, CrossFit Reykjavik in oh, yeah, Iceland yeah, yeah. a couple of years yeah. ago. Have you ever been? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I don't know when you went because they th- this thing grows extra limbs like like an octopus. Right. Um, and when I was there, the warm up and mobility, warm up and cool down area, which is fully matted and looks like a BJJ gym, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of recessed right in the middle of a lateral gym, and from that viewing platform, you can see everything that's going on. So everybody arrives and rather than standing by the reception desk talking shit, they sit on the mats and talk shit. But while they're right. sitting on the mats, they're doing stretching and they're rolling their arms yeah. out and maybe they've got a, a massage gun on themselves. And then everyone finishes and they go back there and everyone's finished and they're still doing the same. And it's it was crazy while I was out there training. You realize just how much more you get done and how much how much less painful. It's the same as listening to an audio book while you go and do some steady state cardio or you've got a, a one of your favorite tv shows on or something while you're on a bike we had a watt bike right. um throughout lockdown the my buddy's jim jordan very thankfully gave me a watt bike which i think saved me from probably about five kilos of body weight gain and um <laughs> yeah i'd do podcast research i'd be like right who've i got coming up next oh, i've i've got rob wolf right i'll watch rob wolf on the like hmvn uh podcast right. or whatever it might be and i'd just pop it on and you think right it's a it's a podcast at one and a half times speed and before you know it you think well, that's 45 minutes of cardio i've got in i needed to watch right. this thing in any case so yeah I, i'm a big big advocate of trying to um dampen down some of the inevitable boredom that comes from the repetitive yep. less exciting stuff of exercise by trying to pair it with something that's a little bit more exciting and interesting absolutely yeah yeah and it, it frees up that that uh it's very time efficient like you're 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 getting some multitasking in but multitasking in a way that doesn't make you crazy yeah, it's Most not chaotic is, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, that's a really good way to put it because you're already in this presumably what you're not going to be doing this while it's a cognitively demanding task like while you're trying to learn a new bjj move or something like that right. you're not going to be watching something so you're already probably somewhat parasympathetic you're already right. a little bit calm. You may be focusing on your breathing. You said moving at sort of a nasal breathing pace when you're on the airdyne. And then you're watching this thing and it's kind of a nice experience. So you've maybe got to either do a little bit of research or watch your show or listen to your audiobook, but you don't have any of the guilt of having just spent the last hour on YouTube or Audible or whatever because right. you're like, oh, God, I also got my training. And yeah, I think, um, I think that's a really good way to do it. Talking about supplements, what is a supplement which people rely on too much in your opinion? I think probably like a multivitamin, like these high dose multivitamins. Um, when you look at like the amounts and the ratios of, of B vitamins in particular in these things, they're, uh, uh, way, way higher than what we would get from any type of food source. And is that dangerous? uh, I think it could be. I think it could be like, we're really, these things are really important in like methylation pathways, which are important in like uh, uh, cancer regulation and whatnot. And then an interesting aside, like the, the studies looking at say like s- vitamin supplementation use, it really doesn't, it, there doesn't seem to be much upside generally. Now I do think some folks end up with some legitimate um, deficiency scenarios and whatnot um particularly if you're kind of more vegan or vegetarian like uh, b vitamins b12 in particular really really important to supplement but i'm kind of underwhelmed on that like if somebody wanted to do a a multivitamin is just kind of hedging their bet 
I would find one where they recommend like six tablets a day and you only take one and maybe you take it every other day or something like really just kind of a, a really baseline kind of hedging of your bets. But trying to think about that, like, I, I think like just the general multivitamin is probably one of those things that I, I think is overused and, and, uh, could Lauren Cordain ages ago made, made the case that, um, these super, high levels of B vitamins could be problematic with different types of, of cancers. And it, it was really speculative, but I mean, there's some mechanistic stuff there that's kind of like, oh, I could I could see where that could maybe be problematic. Yeah. What about a supplement which is too underused? Maybe vitamin D. My, my, I would say actually creatine maybe because like it seems like everybody should do creatine. Like it seems like no no downside it's neuroprotective it's an antioxidant so even a non-athlete um, even someone yeah even a non-athlete yoga yeah. yeah yeah so maybe creatine but uh uh man if uh if we could get everybody with like a, a spurty vitamin d lamp i i think that that would solve so many so many problems like uh you know just uh if we had community vitamin d lamps where you could just like go walk and you know strip down zipper something closed do three minutes front three minutes back and and then go about your day like i i think that that could be amazing for seasonal affective disorder all these other things that we know are definitely vitamin d driven um but the the bugger there is that like supplementing say like liquid vitamin d um it doesn't seem to do quite the same thing that getting it from the sun does but it, it definitely seems to confer a benefit so that's where like if we could rig up some sort of a, a smart uv supplementation process to generate that vitamin d would be pretty cool how much better is the smart uv versus a oral supplement i don't know but it, it just um there are some folks, uh, Pedro Bastos, he's, he's in, uh, Lisbon, Portugal. He's really smart on this stuff as are some other, uh, physicians that are kind of, kind of, uh, tight with him. Um, they, they understand the research on this much better than I do, but it, you know, kind of the limitations about how they are looking at vitamin D oftentimes also these vitamin D studies, there's supplementing with really paltry amounts. It's like 400 IUs a day, and you should be doing like 5,000 IUs a day to really start moving the the needle at all. So there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges within interpreting what's going on there. The stuff that we can hang our hat on is that it seems like when folks have adequate vitamin D levels, particularly from from sunlight, like there's all this other stuff that happens. Like it releases nitric oxide. It's it's immune modulating. Um, kind of beta endorphin activation. So you just kind of cognitively feel better. Um, we have more that we can hang our hat on with that. And then the supplementation side is just harder to kind of ferret out. Like what, what exactly is going on here? Yeah. Mm. What are your thoughts on nicotine? I'm seeing, I like it. I'm seeing more I, talk now about people reducing their caffeine intake and then using a nicotine gum or something else as a, a shorter acting stimulant. I, I, I like it. And I, I, what is that? What are you, what are you holding it, up? It, it's the Nicorette. Okay. Yeah. Mints. Is that gum? It, these are mints. And I okay. like the mints because the gum, I, I start getting like TMJ from <laughs> chewing it too much. But, um, uh, this first got on my radar when I was doing work for Naval Special Warfare uh, Resiliency Program back in 2008, 2009. And it, what they wanted me to talk about was uh, sleep, food, uh, booze, 
caffeine and nicotine to uh, different Navy SEAL groups, which was was really cool and and super interesting. And in trying to do my diligence, I I wanted to look at the toxicology of nicotine. And when I really started digging in and looking at it, it was really interesting. I was like, man, the problem with this is the delivery system. Like tobacco is really really bad for you. You know, it's terrible carcinogen whether you're chewing it or or smoking it, but just nicotine as a standalone item, can't quite call it a vitamin, but it, it does some really interesting stuff. And uh, one interesting thing is when you look at neurodegenerative disease among smokers, it's shockingly low. And this is kind of mind-blowing because neuro the brain is so exposed to like oxidative stress to microvascular stress like it, it you know it is so uh, uh, kind of exposed in that regard but yet whatever it is that nicotine is doing which it seems to be modifying like the the dopamine re uh, release and then clearly the uh, nicotinic receptor sites it's so beneficial that it, it like i i forget the exact numbers but i want to say that among smokers, the the uh, incidence of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's is like forty percent less, sixty percent less. Like it's stunningly less. And it's one of these things that medicine is just kind of like <clears throat> nobody talk about this shit, you know? It, it, it because it, it it's too confusing. But then it, it's fascinating. There, when you keep digging and digging, it, it you find some articles that are like, how do we get our patients who have successfully quit smoking off of nicotine gum? And there's all this like back and forth and hand wringing. And then you, you get to like this final page. There's a WebMD article that's like three pages long. It's remarkably long. And then it finally wraps it up. And it's like, maybe this isn't that big of a deal. It's almost like the person started the process like I did. And they kept working their way through. And then they get to the spot. And they're like, at the end of the day, there's none of the health de detrimental health effects that we see with uh, nicotine gum and, and mints relative to tobacco ingestion. So maybe it's not that big of a... A deal, but it, I, I, I can ping you that that article. It's really, it's kind of interesting. It's like it was a a uh, journal, a, a journal or a train of consciousness thing that they just wrote because they clearly had kind of one orientation at the beginning, and then this thing. WebMD articles are not typically like four pages long, and this thing kept going and going. And so, yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan. What of do you stuff. use it for? I, I just use it for a kind of focus, and and interestingly, also. Um, Although my gut health issues have improved a ton over time, um, it just seems to improve my my digestion and my gut health. And this is another interesting thing when you when you look at like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, um, those things tend to improve if people begin smoking and tend to worsen if they stop smoking. And so it, it is just another one of those. Definitely the digestive part, and then also kind of the neurocognitive part. Yeah. So you use and it I as usually, a nootropic. How, what's dosage and timing? Uh, I take a four milligram mint and I bite it in half. So it's two milligrams. And then I just stick it between my, my lip and just let it dissolve. Oh, is that how it works? Is it sublingual? The, this one is, yeah. Got yeah. you. Got you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, something that you might be interested in, Scott Alexander from Slate Star Codex. Do you, are you familiar, mm. familiar yeah, yeah, with this yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. he's now on... Um, uh, what's he on Substack as Astral yep. Codex Ten? He just yeah. released within like the, the last two hundred or twenty uh, 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 nootropics. Yes, have you seen it? Did you watch it? I, 
I have not watched it yet. I yeah. watched it, read it. I listened to it on the podcast that an Australian dude does of it, um, which was oh, actually okay. totally awful to listen to because he's just describing what's in a bar chart. Um, so that that was a really awful one to listen to. But I was listening to it earlier on today. It was like torture. Um, but yeah, they go through, dude. They go through all sorts. There's probably fifty plus compounds in there. Um, he gets rid of a few that have got such a small uh, number of suggestions that it kind of wouldn't make sense to put it in mm-hmm. there. But it's there's people talking about microdosing LSD, where that ranks. Microdosing psilocybin, fenibut, like uh, NMD, NAD, everything. And um, that's that was fascinating. I'm gonna. It's saved to my pocket to watch later. So yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna have a little look at that. I thought that was really, really interesting. When I look uh, next to the screen that you are in, I have a tab open with that astral codex uh, topic, right? right no like, way. Ready to roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah. funny. That guy's brilliant. That guy is brilliant. He's he's operating on a whole different level. Like, dude. Uh, yeah. He, I, I don't know if I would love hanging out with that guy or I would want to like throttle him. He's so smart. Like I, I, it would be either or. I don't think it would be any middle ground. The thing that I think is most terrifying about Scott is his ability to write clearly. Yeah. He yeah. has the least barriers, the, the, the fewest restrictions from brain to fingertip of, of potentially anyone that I know. So you had um who did Doors of Perception Aldous Huxley right yeah. so you what what you did what we did in the 60s and the 70s was we needed somebody with the linguistic capability to describe this incredibly complex experience so what happens we find like the writer of the era right and we call him in like the champion to come slay the dragon and we say right okay you're going to experience this thing that basically few people struggle to put into words Tr- try your best tell us what you see and what Scott does for free every single day for 15 years is try and wrangle the chaos of the entire world and all of his inner sort of uh, right. vacillations as well. Um, and he puts them... Dude, he did one... Have you read one called Untitled? It was about uh, feminism. Yeah. 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 Man, that is... It's a, a magnum opus of someone being able to go from... Uh, to just see... Clearly, he sees what's going on, and then he's able to repurpose it into words. The man is he's phenomenal. I love him. Yeah. But I'm terrified Amazing. of him at the he, same I, time. <laughs> I, he only got on my radar maybe about nine months ago. Somebody forwarded a piece that he did. Um, the only thing I can't tolerate is intolerance. And it was so... I thought it was completely in response to like the current cancel culture scene. It was written in like 2008. And I, I was just like, oh, my God, like, this is amazing, you know, and, and so prescient, like, really, really incredible. And then I was, oh, I just went so deep. far down that rabbit hole. I'm like, who is this guy? You know, yeah. It's endless. Yeah. It's one of those people. It's it's the fortune, I'm sure, that you have it with your show as well. And and, and now this will be episode 320-something. Um, it's great because when you find a new creator that you really like and then you realize that they have this sort of Alexandra's Library of of right. past content and you think god i can i i don't need to listen to anyone else or read anyone else for the rest of my life i can just go right. through i can just go through this um a couple of a couple of other blog posts of his that i absolutely adored so meditations on moloch um mm. is the single best thing i've ever read um wow. so it's about twenty five thousand, thirty thousand words so it's a few, couple of hour read 
but it's outstanding. It's it's absolutely amazing. It's very profoundly sort of changed the way that I see the world. And then he did another one about um, is it the only thing I can't bear is the out group, and it's talking oh, yeah, about yeah, in yeah. in group out group yeah. differences. Yeah, and that's really interesting because I had um I had a, a sociologist on recently, and he was talking about the fact that before two thousand and twelve. Both Democrats, or specifically Democrats, they preferred their own party, members of their own party, to their yeah. hatred of the other party. But in 2012, the reason that Democrats voted Democrat wasn't that they loved other Democrats. It was that they hated the opposite side more. So their right. hatred was a motivation greater than their like. And that, simply understanding that, which is explained in in-group versus out-group by Scott, explains so Everything. much of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, and it and it paints a really um, dangerous and kind of depressing picture because it's going to be very difficult to unfuck and walk all that back. Like it, it's 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 bad news. Like it is really really bad news. Yeah, yeah. Rob, man, thank you so much for today. It's been a while coming. I'm very very glad we managed to finally get it done. A huge honor being here. I really enjoyed the time, and thank you for uh, uh, putting up with the multiple schedule tweaks we had to do. Do not mention it. So uh, drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom. I was chatting to Blake earlier on, so we've got something set up for the listeners for oh, that. Awesome. Um, where else should people go? They want to find out about this, the health revolution stuff. The Healthy Rebellion is yep. join.thehealthyrebellion.com. And they can check out the the podcast, uh, same title, Healthy Rebellion Radio. And you kind of get a sense of a lot of what we're up to. We kind of describe what goes on in the Healthy Rebellion. And also we just do a lot of Q&A. Uh, my, my wife and I do that. Yeah. And that's most of where I'm at. I'm not on. I have stuff that looks like me on social media, but it's, it's uh, mainly me writing stuff and my assistant posting it. You won't get a response on social media from me. That's for sure. Well, if it's helping you sleep, I think it's worthwhile. Rob, brother, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Take care.